Welcome to the Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And today's guest is Malcolm McLaughlin, who is the Capitol Bureau Chief of the Los Angeles and San Francisco Daily Journal. Malcolm has been the Capitol Bureau Chief for several years now. Before that, he had worked in the legislature on on various opportunities and committees. He has an MA in journalism from Stanford, and he is as familiar not just with the legislative process, but with the California legislature and what has happened in the California legislature as any person can be. His stories regularly appear in the Daily Journal on legislation in California. But now that this legislative session is over, we are recording this one day after the end of the legislative session in September 2020, we will talk about what has recently happened in the legislature, go over what some of the key bills are, some of the changes in legislative personnel and and policy, uh, and talk about what lawyers need to immediately know now that the session is over in terms of what has passed. Malcolm, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for calling me the the Bureau Chief. I am the Bureau, so the only person I get to order around is myself, but uh, thank you. Well, that, that makes you the, the, uh, the ultimate chief and gives you this insight into the legislature. So what are the most roughly, what are the most significant bills? We want to talk about legislative personnel as well. But what are the most important bills that have now come out, including I know a couple the governor has already signed? Well, I think, uh, you know, the high, there's always kind of one bill that stands out in one way or another, uh, whether it's from voter interest or just the importance in the real world. Um, this, in our just media attention, this year that bill is AB 3088, a bill that did not even exist in its current form a couple weeks ago. Uh, this is the compromise housing eviction bill um, that would replace... The uh, it's an urgency measure was passed and immediately signed by the governor, uh, passed by a two thirds vote. It replaces the eviction moratorium that ju- the judicial council had put in place in April, and uh, when it, um, that went out of effect on we- uh, Wednesday this past week. Um, allowing eviction cases to begin being filed again. Um, it was a compromise that ended up where um, where tenants groups were not very happy with it. Um, it replaced an earlier bill by the same author, AB 1436. There was also a very similar Senate bill, SB 1410. Um, you know, key differences there... Um, uh, you know, I mean, really, it just ha- has just kind of weakened protections for um, um, uh, renters. It would, unless instead of lasting until April or possibly longer, depending on what happens with the coronavirus pandemic, would phase out in February. Um, would require renters to sign an affidavit, affidavit, excuse me, saying that they had um, their income had been affected by the virus. It would take some of the the debt and turn it into consumer debt that you you couldn't be evicted for, but you would still owe. Um, you know, and I, I think this is one of those bills that even its staunchest supporters kind of badmouthed it a little bit, saying this is not everything we wanted, but we had to get you know a very high the vote threshold. Um, I believe that would be twenty seven in the Senate, fifty four in the Assembly. And, you know, we just without these provisions, we, we wouldn't have that. Um, 
And the reason, and the reason, if I can, uh, the, the reason that the uh, two-thirds majority was required, because the two-thirds majority is required for it to go into effect immediately, if it had passed without a two-thirds requirement, then then essentially unlawful detainer actions would go forward and evictions could have taken place immediately. Uh, the background to this, so that we see the full context, is that faced with the COVID crisis and the potential unlawful detainer actions that would cause people who lost their jobs and income to be evicted add to the homelessness crisis. Uh, this has become a subject of discussion in California for many months, the Judicial Council, under its emergency powers, had stayed unlawful detainer summons and actions, but did that really in the interest of the courts. And then I think quite, prop quite properly said that the Judicial Council can't make substantive law, so that was going to expire last week and put the pressure on the legislature. And in order to have it go into effect immediately, it required the two-thirds, and that required a series of compromises that I think it's fair to say a great many people are not completely satisfied with. Right, right. And, you know, I like to say that we have three parties in uh, the legislature, um, Republicans and then Democrats and kind of the more the center and Democrats more on the left. And really, most of the action kind of happens between the left and center Democrats now. And this was very much um, in line with that. I mean, I, I haven't, you know, I have not looked at the bill counts this morning, but it did not garner a lot of Republican support. I think I got a few votes here and there. But I mean, really, this was in, uh, in order to bring in the kind of the more business friendly, more centrist Democrats. No, I understand. Basically, uh, what's required, the tenant protection uh, simply gives protection for people who've been affected by COVID. Some people can simply sign an affidavit. Others have to put in more information. Right. There, there's some stuff about income in there that, um, the, you know, the uh, I believe it was 120 percent of the median income or. God, I'd have to pull it up, but it's very, very complex legislation. Uh, I mean, but one thing that, you know, was pointed out was that, you know, a lot of this was done on behalf of so-called mom and pop landlords, um, as opposed to, you know, kind of these big rental companies, some of which are even run by hedge funds, that, you know, these people were really in danger of if, uh, you know, there, a lot of them are already in trouble. Uh, and in danger of, you know, losing their rental properties. In many cases, these provide the income for people who are retired, you know, would be, represent huge financial losses. And, you know, the, the bills, the bill um, and the other two measures that were proposed were extremely complex. And there's a reason for that or, you know, multiple reasons for that, really. One is that the state is broke. Um, there was, you know, Jerry Brown did all of this planning and, you know, the legislature to have this rainy day fund uh, and, you know, really got a lot of praise for that over the years. But then when the rainy day hit, it was just so rainy that it kind of wiped out, you know, uh, the cushion that was there, um, you know, just in one fell swoop. This was something that hit so much faster than the financial crisis of 2008, uh, 2007, 2008. I mean, there's a lot of hope that it will also be a lot shorter lasting. Uh, so, and um, Ana Caballero, the senator who carried, it's actually just termed out, um, 
at the end of this year who carried SB 1410, she repeatedly fielded questions in hearings saying, hey, why don't we just provide you know financial relief to renters and then that will trickle up to the landlords, we'll keep the mom and pop landlords solvent. And she was just like, we don't have the money, we don't have the money, we don't have the money, we'd love to do that. Um, and then another thing was, is the state looked at putting some kind of pro um, prohibitions on foreclosures, which run through state courts, but is a area of contracting law that uh, very well, very likely is, pre you know, federally preempted because it's banks, interstate commerce. The state has, you know, very lim limited um, ability to kind of um, – uh, to kind of meddle with that, which is something that uh, Senator Andreas Borgias, uh, an attorney, a law professor, I believe, uh, repeatedly pointed out, saying, hey, you know, there's only so far that we can kind of go on the foreclosure side. So you ended up with this very last minute, uh, very complex bill that will, will definitely do some good. Um, a lot of uh, people, especially tenants advocates, are saying there's still going to be a wave of foreclosures. There's still going to be more homelessness. Um, but, you know, the, the, the legislature didn't have a lot of options. Another thing that is really interesting about this, though, is that the, in, the relationship between uh, this very active, very vocal chief justice we have, Tani Cantil Saka'ue, and the legislature, and a lot of her role when they get cases are when the Judicial Council, her other major role, um, you know, besides uh, being the chief justice, you know, on the court, it, you know, when they pass rules is she often, you know, kind of turns around and says, hey, legislature, you need to address this in law one way or another. And she had been saying that since April when this first went into effect. There was, I believe, in July, it was originally supposed to expire. Uh, she ended up extending it. Um, but she appeared to get more and more impatient with the legislature as the months went on. And they dealt with other things and not this. And and then it was addressed, you know, in the la just the closing days of session. Uh, and I think going forward in the next year, that's going to be a very interesting relationship to explore. Well, I think the Judicial Council, the Chief Justice, especially in Judicial Council, was really very sensitive to the roles, the different roles of the legislature and the courts. The actions by the Judicial Council at the outset of the COVID crisis were really directed towards safety in the courts. And a large part of the rationale for the Judicial Council intervening under the emergency powers granted by the governor was that since the courts couldn't function for safety reasons, that there should be a stay on these summons and actions in unlawful detainer. I think the Judicial Council may also have been motivated and said so because the legislature itself was not was not meeting. But then I think uh, with with great uh, and, and appropriate sensitivity to the different roles of the different branches of government, uh, the Chief Justice and the Judicial Council said, you know, it's not our job to legislate. We acted in the interest of saving and health at the courts, but now the legislature is meeting, so this is something the legislature should deal with. And I think that that for lawyers, that is an appropriate division between the legislature and and the judicial branch, especially since basically everyone was acting in the dark here. I mean, when COVID hit, 
in March, the carts were closed down. This was like dropping leadership into into a mine with no lights and saying, feel your way out. So I think if, if we look at this as, as an appropriate judgment by the judicial branch as to what the difference between judicial and legislative roles, we'll see this as a matter of principle and not, and not simply the, the independent relationship. But lawyers, one thing I think we both can say clearly is lawyers should read everyone involved in both foreclosures and landlord-tenant issues, should read AB 3088, its enactment, it is now the law, very closely. For example, we should talk for a moment about the preemption provisions because uh, some localities, City of Los Angeles and others, had enacted their own moratorium. And in AB 3088, there are preemption provisions that essentially say it is this legislation by the state of California that will govern relief in unlawful detainer uh, and and be the dot, be what controls not the locally involved uh, previously enacted provisions is that a fair reading of the of the preemption provision oh a- absolutely and um, there are tenants advocates who said that you know that, that given how many people live in some of these large city you know Los Angeles um, that hey you know for a significant portion of this the, the state's population you've actually weakened protections uh, so yeah, I mean that that that's going to be very interesting going forward. Um, I do expect there to be some sort of legal challenge uh, to this at some point. Um, we've certainly seen a lot of legal action around the Chief Justice's original, or I should say, the Judicial Council's um, original um, uh, emergency rule one, which was the eviction protections. Um, and also, I believe there was foreclosure protection, foreclosure protections in Emergency Rule Two, uh, which is that's something that it's far easier for probably ju- the Judicial Council to get involved in uh, than the legislature, because the you know the Judicial Council does control the courts and the courts take the cases. They don't face some of the uh, necessarily those same preemption issues because they're not changing the law; they're just changing how the courts function. For a limited period of time, yeah, that that is that is the right uh, the the right division, and you know your point you make about what was its practical effect. I mean, for example, the city of Los Angeles uh, eviction uh, protections, so to speak, uh, were were to stay in effect until after. Uh, the COVID emergency had been declared over, uh, and so it could have could have extended well beyond February first, two thousand twenty-one. But this bill uh, only works through February first, twenty twenty-one. At which point, uh, full unlawful detainer proceedings go forward, and there will be a major issue still then at that point about whether localities can enact provisions after uh, after that date. In the meantime, under the bill. Uh, tenants, even with the protection, still have to pay 25% of the rent. Uh, so when you put all this together, I think the headlines are, this is the major piece of legislation for the term. It affects a dominant part of the California economy, but everyone involved has to read the bill very, very closely both in terms of advising tenants and landlords, in terms of potential litigation, and in terms of unlawful detainer proceedings. And there's been an added complexity here, of course, because now the federal government, through regulations of the CDC regulations, have now imposed through the end of the year uh, their own and a different 
set of eviction protections uh, just through the end of the year, but that have different requirements uh, for participating and also which contain provisions that uh, as long as states are doing at least as much as the federal regulations, the state law will uh, will apply. So everyone has to look very carefully who's involved in this area at the federal CDC regulations as well, because they contain uh, different standards for participation in the program, somewhat higher income levels, for example, you, and it's still participation. And, and then there'll be a question about whether uh, the federal regulations override the requirement of the 25 percent payment of rent for those who qualify under the state regulations. So, as I say, we get back to the big headline, major legislation, major impact, uh, but I think uh, everyone would agree, everyone in this area has got to read this very extensive bill very, very carefully. Well, the CDC order was really interesting, too. Um, I, I, you know, somebody I know was just like, hey, can they do that? It's uh, it's something we've never heard of the CDC doing. Uh, apparently they can. Um, I do believe, uh, at least on an initial reading, that the CDC order would affect California a lot less than it would affect a lot of other states. Uh, because the California protections do seem to be, uh, in general, stronger and longer lasting. Uh, but you know, and all, I mean, also um, with the, all the debates around these bills that have happened late in the session, I've had a chance to talk to a few uh, attorneys who represent landlords, our tenants, uh, mostly landlords. Um, but one thing they seem to agree about is that sort of the wave of evictions in kind of the real in the real world has not been quite as bad or the wave of potential evictions is maybe not as bad as a lot of people are thinking at this point um for a few different reasons that there was there were the government stimulus checks that were going out that is dropping off so it could start to get worse again um a lot of people uh kind of moved preemptively uh moved in with family or found cheaper living situations um, I mean, that's just anecdotally as a person, you know, living my life in Sacramento, um, I, I did notice at one point there were a whole lot of moving vans around. Um, so that, that matches up. But yeah, we really are kind of, even with this legislation, heading off out a bit into the unknown. And you mentioned the moving vans. I mean, anecdotally, we know that many landlords and tenants faced with this uncertain situations have attempted to make private arrangements in which essentially, in some cases, landlord make payments to tenants to have them move out and vacate the apartment. Uh, and tenants then may be free of other obligations they may have had. Uh, but certainly the new technical background to all this, the uh, AB 3088 and the CDC regulations and the relationship with local government, uh, just add levels of complexity that everyone has to consider uh, when they're thinking about the kind of uh, the kind of deals uh, that they've made. Uh, so we've talked about a major, what I think a lot of people would say was the major piece of legislation. Uh, before we, we go on to other legislative enactments and, and this discussion, uh, we're going to break for a moment to hear more about a new program that the Daily Journal is doing on September 23rd. It's a webinar on women in Silicon Valley, and we will now take a break to hear more about that program. Venture capital is often thought of as a man's world, but powerful women are disrupting that model. 
I'm King and Spalding partner, Quinn Ta, and on September 23rd, I'll be moderating a panel for the Daily Journal's next webinar on female pioneers who are breaking the glass ceiling in venture capital. Join me and our panel of experts on Zoom from 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. as we talk about how our Silicon Valley trailblazers are overcoming and succeeding in the legal and business world, how women are helping each other bring in business and promoting each other, and how we all can work together to change the paradigm in Silicon Valley, which as we know is male-driven and predominantly white. To register, please visit the link in the description of this episode. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. Before the break, we, we talked about uh, the key landlord-tenant uh, legislation, but there was much else beside landlord tenant. Malcolm, what, what 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 were the other major bills the legislature acted on here? Well, I think uh, I mean there were a few things. Uh, probably the biggest was uh, things relating to policing and criminal justice. Uh, there was also uh, definitely some courts related stuff that we should probably talk about. Um, it wasn't sort of the things that got, you know, the big mainstream headlines, but certainly of interest to us. And then there's a lot, there was a lot that happened or in some cases, you know, didn't happen. This would be the same with uh, the, the criminal justice and policing, uh, but with labor laws, some things coming out of AB5 and Dynamex in the aftermath of that. Uh, I mean, the one thing, another thing I would say is what this session will be remembered for is just how little the legislature was able to get done. Um, like you had mentioned before, they were gone for a lot of the summer. They came back uh, to a situation where um, I believe at this point, at least three legislators have tested positive. Um and uh, I had a, a lead in a story recently where I kind of joked that the coronavirus was able to do um, what Republicans in the legislature had failed to do for years, which was slow down the Democratic bill machine. Uh, and we got um, just over 400 bills landed on the governor's desk. Uh, by contrast, I believe last year over 1,000 got there and he signed 870 approximately so just in terms of you know before he's even vetoed anything uh we're looking at you know half or less the number of bills and uh, you know you had the leaders in both houses saying hey we're only going to do kind of priority things um and i don't even know that sort of policing and criminal you know they were certainly on there um what happened with some of the protest and the incidents that led to the protest really got some of those um back on and uh you know it's interesting like since we had we started this conversation we'll, we'll go ahead and just dive into some of the policing bills another big bill from this year um was sb 731 
which is a bill that would um, would have decertified uh, police officers uh, who were found to be liable in violent incidents for you know excess use of force would have made it uh, far more difficult or in, uh, potentially impossible for them to get another job as a police officer from a, a di in a different area in California. This goes back to what a lot of um, you know, uh, people advocating for greater controls on policing have said, hey, you know, somebody commits a really terrible incident in one jurisdiction, they agree to leave their job, they move 400 miles away, still in the state, and they get another job. Um, ultimately, that did not make it through here at the end, but I got an announcement from Sen uh, Senate Leader Tony Atkins. And then uh, Senator Stephen Bradford, who was the author of that bill, um, both of whom I believe will be that back next year, and um, just saying we're we're bringing it back. I know there's several bills that that because of the uh, because of the calendaring uh, didn't make it. You've mentioned one of the prominent ones in criminal justice. Uh, I I, th I think it's important to note that there were other things that also just as a diversion. I mean, we'll get back to the criminal justice, but just in terms of the calendaring, very significant bill which essentially would have changed single family zoning and permitted the building of a second unit on all single family zoning lots uh, that simply couldn't get through the Senate because they didn't have time to consider it, even though it, it passed out of out, out of the assembly. That was fascinating. SB 1120. That one uh, was a Senate bill was in the assembly, was passed on the last night of session in the assembly, but didn't get back to con concurrent amendments in the Senate in time for them to pass it. Um, I mean, normally what happens on the last night of that session, especially at the end of a two-year session when the deadlines are particularly strict, um, they'll kind of go up until late in the evening and then they'll be like, okay, we've done our business, you know, it's 10.30, 11 o'clock, whatever. Here they literally ran out of time and uh, Senator uh, Senate Leader Atkins held a press conference at 2 in the morning. Um, I will admit that I was fast asleep and did not go to that one or did not attend that one virtually. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, and you really, you literally had bills dying on the floor just for, for lack of time. Yeah, no, I think that this discussion we're having and your, your reporting and your insight about how the legislature functions, in fact, the mad dash in the last day, uh, things not being considered because of the calendar, because of the adjournment calendar. It's all part of the reality of of legislation. In addition to those bills that didn't make it through that might come back, we've been talking about policing. There are a couple of significant bills that did make it through. One was on jury challenges. Uh, there now must be uh, a more determined, a, a greater explanation in terms of jury challenges uh, in, involving uh, race or other items uh, of discrimination. That's going to become a hot, a hot subject as it goes forward. That was one policing bill. Then there was another that gave more authority I mean, the, the decertification didn't pass, but there was a bill that gave authority to the attorney general to review uh, all cases of alleged police abuse. Was and didn't that pass? Was that that was one that passed, didn't it? 
Uh, yes, I believe so. So we, we have that in terms of involving the attorney general. There were there were other things that came close and did not pass. For example, in the discussion about explaining reasons for peremptory challenges, there was actually serious discussion, though it didn't pass, about essentially ending peremptory challenges and requiring a statement of cause uh, for any challenge to a jury. These are things on the agenda uh, to look forward to. So those were the policing issues that are content going to continue to be very prominent. In addition to policing, you mentioned the labor issues, and among the most prominent labor issues are still the fallout from the Dynamics case and AB5. There was significant legislation involving what we've come to refer as AB5, which is the classification of independent contractors or an employment status. How did that finally work out this year? Well, um, I mean, you know, there is really less action on that than you might think. Um, I mean, one uh, bill that was certainly noticed in our industry was AB 323, which extended um, an exemption for newspaper carriers by one year. Uh, so that will last until 2022 now. Um, but, you know, I mean, and us, I mean, well, this is something we've spoken about before, but um yeah, there, you know, one thing of critics of, of AB5, uh, you know, often fail to mention is that even if you got rid of the law, which is actually something the uh, Republican um, a Republican Senator Shannon Grove tried to introduce amendments into another bill that would have basically like gotten rid of AB5. Uh, that didn't go anywhere. That was in the last couple of days of session. But that even without that bill, you still have the dynamics case and the um, the ABC test. Uh, so that you know, you, the, yeah. I mean, it, it's very, it's very hard to um, legislate around uh, a, a Supreme Court decision. Well, what it would require, I think, uh, people talk colloquially and maybe introduce bills that contain language of repealing AB five. But what it would require by the legislature is a piece of legislation that enacted a different rule than dynamics. Right. I mean, that's not a constitutional decision. It's a rule of law that comes out of the legislature. So the legislature would have the power to say not just that we're repealing AB five, but this is our new rule of determining when it, when someone's in independent contractor or an employee. They could do it that way, but they're nowhere near the votes to begin to do that. So the entire legislative action has been on carving exemptions out. And for those in the entertainment community, for example, there were not only what you've mentioned in terms of newspapers interest, but there's now a greater freedom for people who claim to be in independent contractors in the music industry, for example, in terms of performances that was very significant to the uh, to the entertainment industry. The, I, you know, I have uh, I have uh, friend in the entertainment industry and uh you know one i think one reason they got those uh exemptions is that uh you know he and his wife are both uh um involved in it and they are able to get health insurance basically through kind of a a, a union that you know one or both of them has belonged to at various times so even if they're kind of going from job to job you know he's he's worked on a couple of tv shows and she's appeared in you know small roles on tv shows um that they are still able to get health insurance and benefits and you know that's something that um a lot of you know gig you know traditional uh, or more recent gig workers don't have 
Yeah. No, that's very important because people who are part of, of, the, of, of the entertainment industry or labor organizations, SAG, AFTRA, and others, uh, may have various benefits through being part of that organization that simply ordinary uh, called gig workers do not have. It's becoming clear, wouldn't you say, that this is really the net effect of dynamics and what's come out of the legislature is really a battle over the transportation agencies, over Uber and Lyft and DoorDash, and that that is where so much of the focus is on in terms of how this plays out. Uh, and so while there are individual exemptions that continue, that's going to be the big battle. And, of course, that's going to be on the ballot in November as well because of a, a proposition on the ballot that essentially overrules dynamics that is, as it applies uh, to those transportation companies. Well, yeah, and, and of course the legislature could overrule dynamics if they wanted, but the idea that you're going to get something uh, friendlier to business than dynamics out of this legislature uh, is d- does not really seem realistic. Yeah, no, I think that's that's the realistic analysis of of what's happening in terms of this. There were also some other labor laws that are very significant in terms of of expanding leave uh, uh, to care uh, to care for family members and still have to be rehired. Uh, the size of organizations to which those laws were applicable were made dramatically small. I believe that one was weakened in the late going, or uh, at least they fended off uh, provisions that would have strengthened it. Um, so yeah, no, there was uh, there was quite a lot that happened in uh, in that area, um, you know. And one thing, one really interesting battle in a lot of these was uh, not just whether the law itself would pass, but whether there would be a private right of action. Um, and uh, my, our, my colleague Jessica Mock has written about the uh, wrote a really good story about this, and they actually managed to to get them a, a private right of action amended out of at least one of those bills, um, because it tends to come down to whether you know you need the attorney general or a local district attorney or city attorney to to file these cases, or whether just anybody with a lawyer can do it. Yeah, the private right of action issue has become dominant in legislation and court cases. The federal courts and the federal law on this far more restrictive than the state courts. But as all these provisions are enacted, whether there can be a private right of action really means whether the plaintiff's bar can become involved in taking individual cases and seeking damages. And in terms of the negotiation, that is as dominant an issue that divides people as as anything else. So as with the landlord-tenant issues and as with the policing issues, I think we can fairly say about the labor law issues that anyone involved in this area has to look very specifically at the provisions that were passed about the full implications of dynamics in AB5, about the additional protections, about the potential private right of action. And there has been movement in this legislature, but as we read the tea leaves and Malcolm will take us through those tea leaves as he continues to govern the legislature in terms of what's going to be happening in the future. So we've talked about the specific bills, some of them. We'll now take another break because the Daily Journal covers a great deal more than simply the legislature. It covers that superbly, but it also covers other things, has other news stories. And we'll now take another short break to hear about some of the headlines from recent editions of the Daily Journal. You're listening to The Weekly Brief with Howard Miller, brought to you by The Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of August 31st. 
A Ventura judge drew criticism this week for saying witnesses didn't have to wear face masks. Supervising civil judge Vincent O'Neill Jr. said witnesses would wear clear face shields and the lawyers would be responsible for providing them. Judge O'Neill drew objections from attorneys on all sides of the case. Assistant Court Executive Officer Robert Sherman said the judge's decision allows the jury to better assess credibility, but attorneys in the case say it's a risk their clients shouldn't have to take. The Monsanto case continues as both the Roundup manufacturer and the plaintiff's attorneys file dueling appeals to the California Supreme Court. Monsanto argues that federal law preempts plaintiff's arguments that it failed to warn consumers about the weed killer's health risks. Attorneys for the company said labeling glyphosate as carcinogenic would be a, quote, false and misleading statement, end quote. The first district court of appeals rejected this argument, but still slashed the plaintiff's $78.5 million award by nearly 75 percent. The plaintiff's appeal states they should be able to recover significantly more damages. Justice Ming Chin retired from the California Supreme Court this week on his 73rd birthday. Appointed to the bench in 1996, Justice Chin was the first Chinese-American to sit on the state's highest court. He has long been a conservative voice in an increasingly liberal state Supreme Court, but he won't have a replacement anytime soon. Governor Gavin Newsom said he expects to appoint a new justice in the next few months. Until then, appellate judges will rotate in alphabetical order to fill in. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. We've spoken about specific bills, but there's a great deal going on that's going to affect the legislature that you have to be there to appreciate, isn't there, Malcolm, in terms of personnel, committee chair people that are leaving, people who are being termed out, the number of people who are lawyers in the legislature. Tell us about some of that. So we're going to be looking at a different cast of different groups of people as we go forward on these issues. Right, right. Well, and there's two names in particular that I would bring up. Um, the first one is probably the the less important just in terms of what is going to happen in the legislature next year. But uh, Diane Boyer-Vine, the longtime legislative counsel, retired. Uh, I guess she officially retires in October. But uh, given that the legislature is done for the year, I mean, she's, you know, her important work is done. Uh, she had that job for 18 years, uh, really is credited with um, uh, professionalizing and expanding. I think they have a, a um, that agency has something like 600 lawyers now. Uh, they write a lot of the legislation. They are kind of tasked with... Um, uh, proofing the legislation to see is it going to stand up for you know state or federal constitutional challenges. Uh, so kind of an end of an era there. In terms of what happens day to day in the legislature, though, far more important even is going to be uh, Senator Hannah Beth Jackson uh, has termed out in, after six and a half years as chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, a tremendously important committee. Uh, just in, in the in the legislature in general, and especially for our coverage, very influential. And uh, somebody who has been very aggressive in bringing her own legislation and somebody who has said, yes, I know this is going to be challenged in court, but I think it'll stand up. 
Um, I, one key example I would bring up of that is I believe her bill is um, from a year or two, a couple of years ago, uh, SB 826, demanding on women, uh, women on corporate boards. And a lot of uh, sort of people who are kind of more conservative or in the business community said, hey, this is not something and, you know, this only applies if you're headquartered in California, obviously, but said, hey, this will be federally preempted. You can't do it. Well, guess what? There's been two major court cases. One was dismissed for standing. The law still stands at the moment. Uh, and it stood up enough that we saw um, another bill, uh, AB uh, 979. Uh, demanding uh, representation of minorities, uh, racial minorities, under underserved communities on corporate boards. Uh, also, almost certainly, that that's sitting on the governor's desk. Almost certainly, um, will be challenged in court. Uh, so yeah, that'll that'll be really interesting. But you know, certainly an end of the era, end end of an era in the Senate. And I think it's really coming at the beginning of a time when we're going to see some of the more prominent lawyer legislators of recent years uh, terming out in the next two to four years. Um, uh, one, Bob Senator Bob Wykowski, a former chair of the Assembly Judiciary Committee, uh, has two more years left. He's uh, widely considered to be a leading candidate to become Senate Judiciary Chair. Uh, in particular, his, his appointment would not um, upset some of the younger or less experienced legislators who also have an eye, you know, their eye on that job for a longer term. You know, he with two years left, he would not uh, have, be able to serve, you know, the full six year, you know, a, a long term of like six years. Uh, Bob Hertzberg, the author of the uh, SB 10 bail legislation, um, I believe he's got one more term left. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was a, a law, you know, somebody who was a, uh, in the legislature and the assembly before left, had a very successful law practice, uh, former top 100 Daily Journal lawyer. He'll be gone. Um, so yeah, and I, yeah, there's a few other names that we could get into, but th those are some of the big ones. Before we talk about those names, I'd like to go back for a moment to the Legislative Council because people who don't deal with the legislature, who simply, you know, hear about the legislation that's passed, uh, often don't understand the uh, sheer significance and importance of the Legislative Council's office and all legislation goes through. We should talk, to, talk to us more about that process. I mean, legislatures may suggest, but in terms of drafting, technical drafting, technical impact, evaluating, all legislation passes through that Legislative Council's office, which acts professionally, but still is as critical, uh, as critical an office and as critical an institution in the legislative and legal process as anything else in the state of California. It, it, isn't that a fair statement about the importance of that office and the person who heads it? Oh, absolutely. It's a tremendously important job. I may have overstated the number of lawyers, um, but uh, they, yeah, they have many, many lawyers. And it, 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 you know, it's also interesting that it's a job that people have tended to stay in for very long periods of time. It's very, uh, very specialized, but um, I mean, we've literally had like, I don't know, a dozen of them going back like over a century. <laughs> People, you know, tend to stay 10 to, 10 to 20 years. And a lot of the, their job is to lessen the load on the attorney general and his firm of 1,600 attorneys. Um, 
because, you know, for one thing, I mean, you know, Javier Becerra, our attorney general, has sued the Trump administration a hundred times. That's gotten the biggest attention. But he's also been sued by uh, the U.S. Department of Justice over numerous laws that the state has passed in recent years, you know, particularly since Donald Trump came into office. And um, there have been, you know, the state has lost some of those cases or has lost at least for uh, certain provisions of law. There was a bill two, three years ago about um, giving the state first right of refusal to buy federal lands if they're sold that are, uh, you know, federal lands in, in California. That one was, you know, pretty soundly uh, thrown out by um, Judge Shubb here in the Eastern District. Uh, but for the most part, those state laws have stood up to scrutiny. They've, st they've stood up to challenges. And um, even when they've been controversial, and I think that really is a testament that to the work that Diane Boyer-Vine's office has done in, in, vetting these, in, in, in vetting these laws. And that's so much of what, in terms of what you report on and understanding the legislature, that's so critical because all through, not just the legislature, but the government, there are large numbers of professionals who simply, in, in the phrase that some people may use, need to do the infrastructure, need to do the plumbing. Uh, legislators can suggest ideas and even send draft bills, but actually drafting the bill with, with all its relationships to other uh, statutes that exist, uh, other statutes that exist, uh, it, it requires this continuing technical expertise by large numbers of professionals who understand the statutes and how they function and understand the administration of the government and how it functions. And again, high on that list is the Legislative Council's office, and it's the reporting in the Daily Journal on these institutions that really help to understand uh, so much of, of what goes on and how to, what it takes to be effective in the legislative and other process. So, but aside from the institutions, you have, uh, uh, you, you've mentioned the individuals, Hannah Beth Jackson leaving, but there also is an interesting uh, review of lawyers in the legislature and what differences there are between the parties. Uh, is there, in terms of party participation with lawyers in the parties, is there a difference in the, uh, in, in the legislature about where lawyers are in the, in the different parties? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so when I, I, I first came to Sacramento 15 years ago, I was a reporter for about six and a half years for a publication called the Capital Weekly. And when I arrived, um, you know, we very quickly got we had we had a Republican governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, and uh, we, you know, definitely there were Democratic majorities, but, um, you know, definitely uh, as well, Republicans had a lot more seats, were a lot more powerful. And there was this era of um, Republican, particular Republican lawmakers, particularly in the Senate, who had been uh, successful lawyers before they got there and had some stature in the legal community, Charles Pachigian um, being one, I could name some others. And uh, that era is really over. And it was also at a time when there was a lot more parity in terms of which um, party had lawmakers who were lawyers. Um, and not only have... Um, do hope Republicans hold fewer seats, but the the number of attorneys has just imploded. Um, I think it's been down to like three uh, Republican lawyer lawmakers. 
in uh, these last couple sessions, and they they tend to be pretty young and are new to the legislature. Um, you know, they're not like kind of these guys in their 50s and 60s um, as much who've been around. Um, whereas on the Democratic side, uh, their lawyer, the number of lawyer legislators is basically as high as it's ever been. And you have people like Hertzberg, Bob Hertzberg, who were, you know, quite successful as private attorneys now, you know, now serving in the legislature. And or you know somebody like uh, you know Hannah Beth Jackson, um, who was you know really able to take her legal expertise and turn herself into a tremendously influential legislator. Um, and another thing, so I do an annual. I've done it the last two years. Uh, lawyers in the legislature typically comes out in December or January. Um, I wasn't thinking I was going to do it again this year, but then we had this incredibly unusual um, uh, session with just you know not a lot of bills passed, a lot of uh, strange maneuvering. The priorities changed, um, and I think it became much harder to to get any kind of bills through. So I think I'm going to do it again. But I think what you're going to still see is that lawyers are better at getting legislation passed. This is something that applied across both parties and was quite striking. Um, it wasn't universal, but you know, there, if you average it out, there's a very clear difference. Uh, certainly, be interesting to see next year uh, with Hannah if Hannah Beth Jackson is gone and not skewing the numbers. If that goes down too, because uh, she was very good at getting bills passed. <laughs> Well, and in addition to your writing on lawyers in the legislature, which is really, I think, extremely helpful in understanding how the legislature functions, the Daily Journal at the end of every year publishes a special pamphlet, a special uh, pamphlet, uh, special information that lists all the bills that have passed during the year. Uh, in terms of their review. And again, it's a publication. We've done this immediately after the closure of the session. Some of the bills have already been signed. Some of them may not be. We've only been able to talk about a very small group of bills that passed. But watch for the end of the year Daily Journal publication, which will be available online and to subscribers as the, as the paper is delivered, which, as it has done for every year in the past, uh, lists all the bills enacted uh, by the legislature, and it's actually quite interesting reading as you go through it and see the areas the legislature covers. And one area where it, what you've talked about, which is lawyers in the legislature, become very important when there are discussions about procedures in the courts. Uh, for example, this year, in terms of procedures in the courts, very significant legislation uh, that validated uh, uh, virtual depositions, for example, uh, that were somewhat, uh, there were complexities involving them. The Judicial Council had enacted emergency rules during COVID, but again, only for that period. But the legislature has now done things that has validated uh, haven't they? The virtual depositions of the court reporter does not have to be in the same room with the witness, and it can be done online. And that is now a valid provision of the California Code of Civil Procedure in a direct, immediate, validating way that it never existed before. Isn't that one of the significant things that also came out of this uh, session of the legislature? Yes, yes. That bill uh, was passed there. Um, you know, somebody uh, said something a while ago um, 
I'm, I can't remember who it was, but um, it, it really became a useful way to look at all sorts of things coming out of this pandemic, is that the pandemic accelerated a lot of trends that we were already seeing, uh, people working at home, um, that uh, for you know for one, um, but when you look at the courts, uh, we were already moving, and the courts, even when they had to cut budget um, in some of these previous years, were still spending money on modernization, on remote access, and but just because um, you know it's an access to justice issue. But then suddenly, when the courts were closed, it became so much more pressing. And a lot of the courts have done a really impressive job of, you know, getting their hearings online. And, um, you know, I've been it started with the federal courts, but I've been doing it with state courts now, too, just watching things happen online. Um, and, I, you know, I don't expect that stuff to go away. Uh, once uh, once this pandemic eventually cross our fingers passes, um, so that that's been very important. Um, you know, on the same night that uh, Governor Newsom signed the uh, AB 3088, the eviction bill, he also signed the annual Judiciary Omnibus Bill, which is something that would more typically be able to wait. Uh, but this year, it was a 27,000-word monster, making all sorts of little accommodations here and there, some of which had to do with uh, some of the things that courts need to do to still, you know, operate virtually and keep going. And then the other bill that I would flag uh, was uh, not signed yet, but I'm expecting it to be signed, AB 3366, Judicial Emergencies. Uh, because um, the in the Judicial Council's rules, there was basically a set of rules for emergencies that would have, you know, things like floods, fires, the things that you've typically seen natural disasters affect the state, affecting one county, two counties, maybe four, five, six counties at most. Uh, but when something hit that affected the entire state, uh, the the um, the chief justice was under this set of rules where if the uh, presiding justice of a court officially requested a uh, some sort of accommodation or change, um, then she could make that change. Um, when 58 counties were affected, suddenly she's uh, a she had to do over a hundred orders, some of which basically invalidating earlier orders in order to deal with tolling and timing issues. Uh, you know, good thing she has a capable staff to help her deal with this. Um, but it ju just tremendously complex. Uh, AB 3366 will allow the, the Chief Justice to uh, enact statewide orders if certain conditions are met. And I think, you know, really this pandemic has brought the courts like a decade into the future uh, on yeah. some of these things. Very significant because in dealing with this immediate crisis, it did require, you know, simply emergency powers to the Chief Justice and Judicial Council. It simply could then authorize uh, the local courts to do a variety of things. They many all did different things. And so lawyers uh, in around the state had to keep track of what was going on in all the counties, certainly in all the major counties. But now this gives gives the Chief Justice and the Judicial Council the authority in emergency conditions to essentially enter statewide uh, corrective actions that, that, that affect the courts. And you're absolutely right in terms of what COVID has done. It has uh, accelerated things that had been held up for some time. Some things people thought were necessary hadn't gotten done. Some things that were happening, they're now accelerating. And we've been so 
Honored. Thank you so much, Malcolm, for joining us and discussing legislation and the future. Uh, this podcast, you know, you may be listening to it uh, outside the Daily Journal paywall without a subscription uh, on Apple Podcasts or in DailyJournal.com. But we have mentioned uh, all the other material that's inside the Daily Journal that if you're a subscriber, uh, you have access to. If you're not and you want access to what is a treasure trove of information and understanding of what is happening and has happened, you can get a subscription to the Daily Journal and not just hear these podcasts, but have extensive, but have total access to all that has appeared in the Daily Journal over the years on any issue you are interested in. Uh, We're talking about doing a breakout of every law that is COVID related in a special section in that supplement. I think that would be something that'd be uh, very useful uh, for people. And that's that's all that the new law supplement is something that I'm always very involved in putting together. And that will be coming out very soon. Having said that, and more important at the moment, I want to thank you, Malcolm, for joining us. Thank you for your work in the legislature. We're deeply grateful you've taken the time to help share with us what you've covered in the California legislature. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me.